Hi, everyone. This is part two of our two-part series, The Belt and the Berm. Part one was about the belt, the world's longest conveyor belt, found in northwest Africa, and about the phosphate that it conveys. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to pause, go back, and listen. Otherwise, let's jump into part two. The berm. It's strange that so many people know about the Berlin Wall, but so few seem to know about the berm in Western Sahara. The Berlin Wall was about 90 miles long. The berm runs for nearly 1,700 miles. That's about the distance from New York City to Austin, Texas. But in a lot of ways, the two barriers are similar. Just like the Berlin Wall, the berm divides a once-united people. And like the wall, the berm can be deadly for those who dare to get too close. In the last episode, we talked a lot about mining, as in digging up resources. But here, we're talking about landmines, explosives. There's an estimated 7 million landmines running in and along the berm. Yeah, the berm is today, you know, could be argued one of the world's largest currently functioning military infrastructures. It's just stuffed full of mines. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura. This is part two of our two-parter, The Belt and the Berm. It's the story of how the world's longest conveyor belt led to the creation of the world's longest minefield. It's one of the most tragic stories, I think, uh, in our world today, which doesn't always receive all the attention it deserves. More after this. A traditional Sahrawi tea ceremony can last for hours. It's meant to slow down time and make room for conversation. Traditionally, three cups of tea are served. When the Sahrawis serve that first cup of tea, they say it's meant to be bitter, like life. The second cup gets a healthy dose of sugar and is sweet, like love. And the third and final cup is supposed to be gentle, like death. The word Sahrawi means inhabitant of the desert. And going back for a thousand years, the Sahrawi were the nomadic tribes in Western Sahara. Their caravans controlled the trade routes throughout North Africa. But for the last half a century, they've been exiled from their homeland. It's Sahrawi. It's got that, that hard H next to that rolling R, so yeah, it can be tricky. That's Jacob Mundy. He's an assistant professor at Colgate University and the author of Western Sahara, War, Nationalism, and Conflict Irresolution. He spent a lot of time in the territory, and he sat down for many Sahrawi tea ceremonies. It's a kind of prerequisite of hospitality that you would make tea for guests. Say you're doing interviews in the refugee camps or the occupied territory. It's, you know, you're in for uh, being, you know, very charged, full of caffeine and, and sugar. His interest in the region started when he was younger. Well, I volunteered uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer. <laughs> um, and I got sent to Morocco. And during training, they said, yeah, don't talk about Western Sahara. Don't talk about Western Sahara. So that kind of, I think, started the interest. Western Sahara, where the desert meets the northwest coast of Africa, is sandwiched between Morocco to the north and Mauritania to the south. And 
despite being the size of New Zealand, it isn't actually a recognized country. It's a disputed territory, cut in half by the world's longest minefield. But to understand why, we need to go back. You know, in 1885, when there's the big scramble for Africa. The scramble is also known as the rape of Africa. It was basically a free-for-all to grab resources. Gold, diamonds, ivory, rubber, you name it. And for the first half of the 1900s, North Africa was in an intense fight to throw off the colonial powers of Europe and regain their independence. By the 1950s, they were winning. Morocco won back its independence in 1956, Mauritania in 1960, and Algeria in 1962. But Spain held on to Western Sahara. And they held on for a reason. Because at the same time that North African nations were fighting for their freedom, there was another kind of revolution happening. The Green Revolution is a bloodless battle. It's the fight against famine and the fight for improved agricultural production. The so-called Green Revolution of the 1960s brought about a huge number of changes and advances in farming. As the world population was exploding and they needed to find ways to feed all these new people, agriculture turned to things like seed engineering, widespread use of pesticides, advances in mechanized cultivation, and new forms of fertilizers. Fertilizers were fueling the Green Revolution. That's Lino Camparubi. He's the historian of science and engineering you heard in part one. The demand for these new fertilizers during the Green Revolution meant a boom in demand for mine phosphorus. And a mine happened to be discovered in the middle of nowhere in the Western Sahara Desert. That transformed the future of the entire region. The phosphate discovery in Western Sahara was one of the single largest reserves in the world. It was very rich and it was a lot. And also important, it was relatively easy to get to. So in the 1960s, while all the other European colonizers were leaving North Africa, Spain dug in. They began to develop the phosphate mining operation, including the world's longest conveyor belt that ran 61 miles out to the port. They called the mine Bukra. Bukra took its name basically for an isolated tree, which help nomadic people to find their way in the deserts. That tree, I think, is still standing, and the factory was installed pretty much right next to it. Local Sahrawis got jobs in the mine. They also got wise to the value of what they were exporting. If the tribal Sahrawi had had control of their land, they would own the mine, and it could have meant a per capita income better than many industrial nations. It was workers either in the phosphate mine or as maintainers of the conveyor belt, who were more likely to organize themselves and also to start organizing a resistance against colonial powers. In 1973, a group of Sahrawi, started in part by workers from the Bukra mine, formed an armed independence movement known as the Polisario Front. One of the first things the Polisario did uh, that Spain depicted as terrorist action was attacking precisely the conveyor belt. The Polisario front burned down 14 kilometers of the conveyor belt. These and other actions told the Spanish government that, that the time had come. Spain at the moment was very weak politically because Franco, its long 40 years dictators, was dying. As Spain struggled with its own political issues, like pressure from the UN and attacks from the Polisario, 
they announced that they'd finally leave the region. 1975 was the year Spain left Western Sahara, the year that Sahrawi independence had finally come. And Spain did leave. But instead of Sahrawi independence, a new occupying power showed up. 250 Moroccan soldiers, eight trucks, a jeep, and four armored cars. It is precisely in that moment when Morocco stepped in. The Bukra phosphate mine and Western Saharan Sahrawi independence represented a kind of existential threat to their neighbor to the north, the Moroccan monarchy. Morocco controlled the phosphate market of North Africa and therefore of exports to Europe. But was, what was really, really essential for the regime was that the price of phosphate could be kept high. The Moroccan monarchy had been having a tough few years. The economy was in the dumps. And the Moroccan king, Hassan II, really only had a couple of ways to hold on to power. He could regain control of the phosphate economy, and he could fulfill Morocco's territorial claims over Western Sahara. At first, Morocco tried the official path. They request an opinion from the International Court of Justice, claiming that historically, Western Sahara should be theirs. The court rejected it outright. Here's Jacob Mundy. So... When the court releases its opinion, uh, Morocco then immediately announces its intent to march 350,000 Moroccan civilians into the territory, which is kind of like, whoa, that's that's pretty ambitious, considering that the International Court of Justice just said, you know, you know this territory does not belong to you and that they have a right to self-determination. Hassan II leads 350,000 citizens on a march to the southern border of Morocco, leading some into Western Sahara. It works as both a kind of nationalistic rallying cry for Morocco and as an international threat, one backed up by the Moroccan military and the U.S. At that time, the the Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, was very clear that for U.S. interests, it was mandatory that the Moroccan monarchy survived because Algeria, the neighboring country, was leaning towards the Soviet Union. Sensing the shifting politics, Spain strikes a deal called the Madrid Accords. Western Sahara would be divided up between Morocco, neighboring Mauritania, and Spain. Spain would keep 35% of the proceeds from the Bukra phosphate mine. The only party not at the table? The Sahrawis. Bitter. Like life. The years after 1975 were filled with fighting. The Moroccan army and the Sahrawi guerrillas were locked in a fierce battle for the land. In the early phases of the war, Polisario had, you know, total unlimited freedom of movement. They could attack at will. The conveyor belt was one of their favorite things to sabotage. And it was, it was very difficult to defend given, given the length of the conveyor belt. After years of suffering losses to the Sahrawi guerrillas, the Moroccan military changed its tactics. Rather than play offense, they'd play defense. In 1981, Morocco began building what would be the first part of their berm system, one that could protect the assets they most wanted to control, the Bukra mine. Basically, they created a sort of mine wall around it that would keep cars, for instance, jeeps from coming, that would keep the Polisario from attack again the conveyor belt. Year by year, as the berm system expanded, the Sahrawi population was pushed further and further onto a thin strip of land stuck between the minefield and Mauritania. The war was, was long. 
and it was also lost by the Polisario by most accounts because the Sahrawi people were expelled to a refugee camp in Algeria. There are still over 170,000 Sahrawis living in refugee camps, and the mines in and around the berm have killed over 1,000 people. It's a very striking story, right, that a colonial state colonized an African neighbor in 1975. Today, Morocco controls the vast majority of Western Sahara, including the Bukra mine, despite the fact that neither the African Union nor the UN recognizes Morocco's right to Western Sahara or the phosphates. Despite those statements by the UN, the fact is that all countries keep buying phosphates from Morocco, and some of it comes from the Bukra mine. As of 2016, phosphates from the Bukra mine were being shipped out to the U.S., Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, among others. So this is where we find ourselves, at the end of the conveyor belt, at the end of the minefield. The conflict in Western Sahara can feel remote, but the phosphates that come from the Bukra mine They make their way into the wheat we grow, into the bread we eat, into the atoms in our very DNA. All life on Earth depends on phosphorus, and the agricultural system depends on mined phosphate. But for the Sahrawis of Western Sahara, their phosphate mine has brought them little but death and destruction. Phosphates are, again, one of the basic materials of the entire world economy in that they feed our agriculture that feeds millions of people. But phosphates are limited, and they are reaching a peak, and they also belong, most of them again, to this single country, Morocco. The details of how important phosphate is for our lives and for our future, and also how important they were for this geopolitical situation in Western Sahara are not known at all. It's one of the most tragic stories, I think, uh, in our world today, and there are many, but this is one which doesn't always receive all the attention it deserves. The conveyor belt of history may roll on. We can't stop it, but maybe we can have a hand in what's coming next down the line. Visiting Western Sahara isn't a great idea right now. The 1991 ceasefire between Morocco and the Polisario lasted until 2020, when fighting broke out again. And the Trump administration recognized Morocco's right to Western Sahara. The Moroccan Office of Phosphate announced it invested $1.8 billion in the Bukra phosphate operation, and Morocco has planted new landmines as recently as November of 2020. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, me, Dylan Thuris, Sarah Wyman, John Delore, and Peter Clowney. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming and John Delore. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world.
Witness Docs from Stitcher.